For most of its history, China's power was not only defined by its sheer size, its colossal economy, and its military might, but also by the superiority of its civilization. As you said, the Chinese have had confrontations with all kinds of different people, and they've lost lots of wars, and they, so on. So, the, but the confrontation with the West was different because this was really the first time when the Chinese had a confrontation with another group of people who believed that their civilization was superior and that the Chinese civilization was backward. Huh. Uh, what, when you look at the Chinese Chinese history, whenever they were invaded, what happened? Well, invariably, the invaders started to adopt aspects of Chinese history. Suddenly, you have you have this conversation with the West, and the Westerners didn't seem particularly interested in Chinese civilization because they thought they had a they had a superior civilization. Did you know that starting with the Opium Wars in the first half of the 19th century? China suffered through a century of humiliation at the hands of foreign imperial powers, mainly Europeans. Before this time, countries of East Asia emulated China's literature, philosophy, governing system, economy, and international commerce. But that changed. It was now China who was examining and emulating Europeans, in many ways, large and small. But the point here is this. To the Chinese, this 100-year humiliation and its aftermath was a mere aberration from what otherwise has always been China's rightful place in world history as a superpower. Hey there, news peelers! Today is September 9, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share. Sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and let's get into it. China is in the news almost all the time, and in their lengthy reviews and in-depth reports, experts often manage to expound on the rise of China. Sometimes it's about China's economy, such as a recent Wall Street Journal article titled "China's Economy Won't Overtake the U.S.," some now predict. Sometimes it's more blunt, like this headline from a recent piece in the Foreign Policy Journal: "What Does China Want?" The authors of this article suggest that China doesn't want to be a superpower; it wants to be the superpower. Well, what would a Chinese superpower look like? Does China's history, or more importantly, its perception of its own history, help us answer this question? There's so much we don't know about China's history, and that's a problem, especially as China grows more powerful on the global stage. 
To better understand China's history and its own perception of its history, I spoke with Michael Schumann, who is a non-resident senior fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. He's also a contributing writer to the Atlantic and was previously a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. His most recent book is Superpower Interrupted: The Chinese History of the World, which we discuss here. His two previous books are Confucius and the World He Created, and also The Miracle: The Epic Story of Asia's Quest for Wealth. As a journalist, Mr. Schuman has had 25 years of experience in Asia, and for this conversation, he joined us from Beijing. To learn more about Mr. Schuman, you can visit his homepage. The link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Mr. Schuman and I peel the history behind. This news. Mr. Schumann, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to speak with you about the history of China, but before we do that, let's talk about something you write. In your book, in fact, in the very first sentence of the very first. Page of your book, which is titled "Superpower Interrupted: The Chinese History of the World," it reads as follows: "There's no such a thing as world history, at least not one that holds the same meaning for everyone. Which world history is important to you depends on who you are, where you live, and where you come from." <laughs> Why did you open your book about China with these two sentences? Because that, that's really how the idea for the book got started.、Uh, it, it started、uh-huh. with me thinking about how people learn history, how I learned history. Right? I mean, I I grew up in New Jersey, and I went to just a regular city high school, pretty good high school actually. And and but mainly we learned American history, and other parts of the world and other cultures kind of visited that. Narrative of American history from time to time, but I love it. only、Visited、in kind of cameo appearances, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. and that and that made me think that、uh, other people around the world are learning history the same way. When they are, if you're in Russia, you're learning kind of a Russian version of history. If you're if you're in、uh, Iran, you're using it or learning an Iranian history of you know a, a version of history that we all kind of learn our own histories. And by the way, and, some of these examples that you gave—Russia or Iran, which was previously Persia or, or Russia—they're sort of their own distinct civilization. Let's say from Western Europe. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and I think what happens is when we learn history this way, it, it creates a certain narrowness of vision that we we assume that other people in other parts of the world see history the way that we do. And therefore, have a certain worldview that we have, when in fact that they don't, because they have a different historical experience that shapes their own cultures, their own civilizations, and and their own view of themselves and their own view of where they are in the world and what role they should play in the world. And I, I being you know here in China,、uh, this I think is especially true of China, which is of course a very old. Civilization Why、uh, that has a fascinating、China. history, and and、uh, you know the Chinese have their own story, which I think a lot of people around the world don't know. The story that the Chinese kind of t- teach themselves, and the way the Chinese see their own history, and therefore how the Chinese see themselves in relation to everybody else. 
So how do Chinese see themselves? Like, is there a Chinese perception of their past? Well, then, see, then you start getting into, into interesting issues, which, you know, <laughs> I started this book. I'm like, okay, this is a good idea. And I, I sold the book to a publisher. And then I started asking that exact question. Wait a second. What exactly is a Chinese view of history? Because this is, uh, this has two parts to it. First of all, what is China and what is, what is Chinese? And of course, the quote unquote China of 2000 years ago and the Chinese of 2000 years ago did not identify themselves in the same way that Chinese do did a thousand years ago or what Chinese how Chinese identify themselves today. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. then you get to the issue of like, well, okay, what is China? Um, the second is part of that is uh, what is a historical view? Because views of history change over, over time. How people feel when events or when they're living through the events is not necessarily how historians interpret those events, right? People today will interpret periods of history differently than people did 500 years ago. So it, you end up with this forever moving target. So my solution to this problem was to, was to look at how, well, it was twofold. First of all, to use China's own historiography. In other words, follow how the Chinese tell their own history in their own, you know, their own, in their own, in, in its own order. So that solved one problem. The second problem, uh, I solved by looking at at sources at at the time of historical events, or at least as as closely as as I could. Uh, so you got a view of how the Chinese were thinking about themselves, thinking about their place in the world, and relating with the rest of the world at the time. And when you do that, and you kind of follow that over, you know, twenty five hundred years, uh, which is you know, we have written records. Going back even even longer than that, uh, you can start feeling, you can start sensing trends. You can start seeing how a worldview developed and how some ideas that formed a very long time ago actually still resonate very much in modern times. So, how do in in in, in the context of what you just explained, how do the Chinese see themselves? Especially when I look at the title of your book, "Superpower Interrupted." I think the way that the China, that the Chinese, speaking very broadly, see themselves today uh, is um, that they they have historically been a tremendously influential civilization, a very old old civilization that has contributed a tremendous amount to the world, uh, and that for most of well, I think most some Chinese would say all of their history, but the reality of it is, I would say large. Parts of their history, uh, China was a dominant power in East Asia, uh, and uh, they saw themselves historically at at the top of kind of the hierarchy of civilizations. It's a, it's important when you think about China today to realize that historically the Chinese did not did not see relations with other peoples and other states uh, in as in equal terms. That they always saw these relations in, in a in a uh, uh, in a hierarchy of you know someone on top and someone subordinate and the Chinese 
believes, of course, that they were the, always the ones who should be in the superior position. Um, and that history uh, uh, changed in the last hundred years when you had the confrontation with the West, yeah. when you had uh, a Chinese fall into political chaos and economic decline. Um, and, and we're going to get to that uh, in part. a moment. I wanted to ask... Yeah. Um, in the context of um, hierarchy, uh, China being dominant uh, in, for sure, in East Asia, um, um, and their sort of superior civilization. One of the things that I wanted you to square away for me, please, when you look at uh, China's history, when I read your book, you see that China has been conquered many times. Um, right. How does that square away with being a superpower, being dominant? Well, it hasn't diminished. It didn't diminish their sense of superiority. It didn't diminish their sense of, of how, superiority. How is that? Uh, it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting point. It's something, and I think that what I think the answer to that is that though they, that China had periods where they were in in great political chaos, you did not have unified governments all the time. Mm -hmm. You had periods, as you said, where they were invaded, uh, either in part or, or in whole. Uh, they lost lots of wars. Um, so you did have periods, of course, over the course of you know thousands of years, you are going to have periods like this. Of course, but yeah. I think one thing that, one thing that stayed uh, generally the same over all this, this time was their civilizational power. Uh, that that even when they went through these these periods of of, uh, of change, uh, when they went in, in, into decline politically or militarily, that they still played a very important role in terms of the, the civilizational influence that they had on East Asia. Because when you think about East Asia, what East Asia is really a a Chinese cultural sphere, where the other the other major societies in the region, you know. Japan, Korea, Vietnam, all to varying degrees, borrowed elements of Chinese civilization from their characters, uh, written characters, uh, to their literature, to their political philosophy, to their, uh, to their actually state institutions and legal codes and all of these things, right? So what I think you'll find over, over all this, this long history with all of its ups and downs is that China was able to maintain that kind of civilizational pull, that civilizational influence through through all of this. So, what the what happened when the dynasties restored themselves, which is another fascinating part of Chinese history. Dynasties often, restoring themselves, okay. How, how, yeah, how often the Chinese political elite were able to rebuild themselves into a major power again, right? That they found that to a certain extent they could quote pick up where they left off unquote, where you know they still had these. <laughs> They still had these cultural bonds and ties to the region that then they could they could capitalize on to reassert their their political influence, uh, and uh, that that was true for the large part of their history until more recently. So superpower means military power, but that's just a part of that definition. There's much more, and we're going to get to those in your book, Mr. Schumann. You state that China's perception of itself and its own history, quote, is to a degree based on actual history and some of which you talked about. So 
Let's take a break here and then talk about some of the amazing highlights from China's actual history. We'll be right back. China is experiencing economic headwinds, particularly in its real estate industry. For example, the Evergrande Group, China's second largest property developer, defaulted on its debt earlier this year. By the way, that company owes more than $300 billion. When I spoke with Professor Xi about it, he suggested that China's real estate debts are essentially a Ponzi scheme. Also, as international businesses were leaving Hong Kong last year, I spoke with Professor Wasserstrom about the history of Hong Kong, its loss to Britain in a war over opium, and China's humiliation of being forced at gunpoint to sign unequal treaties with the Europeans. Finally, if you recall, last year China loosened up its one-child policy. It was a pervasive and intrusive policy that was unprecedented in human history, a policy that led to forced abortions and sterilizations in the millions, and a policy that will have grave consequences for China's grand economic and geopolitical plans. I spoke to Professor Wang about this dark episode in China's history. It's a fascinating conversation in which I learned how politics and policies work in China at the ground level. The links for those earlier conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Schumann about China's perception of its own history. Mr. Schumann, what are some highlights from China's history that support China's perception of their own superiority and sort of super power status. You mentioned writing in the last segment, for example. I, you know, I, I think that the first thing that stands out uh, to me is um, the, the uh, amazing uh, literary history that China has of all sorts, you know, not just poetry, but history, philosophy. Uh, you know, we are blessed with uh, texts and pieces of texts that you know go back three thousand years um, and three thousand. You know, wow. Well, there's there's parts of what they call the Chinese classics uh, that some historians think actually, yeah, would date back to you know to the early Zhou period. So that that would be about three thousand years ago uh, uh, in their original their original form. And uh, so you have you have all you have uh, and and so much of it has been preserved. Uh, and when you look back at what you know the Chinese were philosophers are writing back in what's called the Warring States period and, and earlier, you know, Confucius lived 500 BC, right? This is 500 mm -hmm. years before Christ. Uh, you know, and you look at the kind of advancement of their of their philosophical thought uh, and the ideas that they were wrestling with back then about good government, about the the, the nature of mankind, the moral the moral nature of mankind, and all all of these issues. It's uh, and and also for me, being a historian, thankfully, there's a tremendous amount of very early history writing uh, as well. Uh, that dates back hundreds of years before the modern period. This um, is interesting because we living here in America, we think of 
Herodotus, right? Herodotus, I'm sorry, uh, when it comes right. to writing of history, or we think about Aristotle, Plato, or what have you, um, um, when it comes to philosophy and other principles that have been handed down. But now you're talking about China having its own philosophers that talk about right. good government. Well, moral. this is a whole different strain of philosophical. Remember, Confucius and Socrates were rough contemporaries, so that's the that's the time frame that we're that we're dealing with. Um, and and then I think what's even more what's even more fascinating. This is where we get into that idea of civilizational influence. That you know, a lot of this writing, a lot of the texts became the basis of uh, literature and philosophy. Uh, for for you know much of the region, uh, you know the the Koreans and Japanese, you know were were reading Chinese books for a very very long time, and it was the basis of their own education as well. So, um, you know, it's it's not just what the Chinese did, but but the influence of what the Chinese were doing. Um, when the Chinese started writing, uh, going back to three thousand years ago, were their neighbors even writing then? Well, the, the earliest examples uh, of Chinese writing goes back to uh, around 1200 BC, uh, which is not as old as, let's say, the Sumerians, that kind of thing. What's interesting about it is that it uh, the, the characters are not exactly the same as modern characters, but they're, they're, they're kind of surprisingly similar. So you've you've had this very consistent writing system, and of course the early the earliest writer written records uh, are actually on what is popularly known as oracle bones, right? This was when oracle uh, bones, uh, okay, right? When the Chinese uh, um, kings at the time were doing divination ceremonies, and the the uh, uh, the the people conducting these these ceremonies would basically write more or less write a record of what they were doing it onto the actual bone or a tortoise shell. They also use tortoise shells. Yeah. And and the and these were these were kept as records. So a lot of the very, very, very early knowledge we have real knowledge, hard knowledge we have of Chinese history is actually stuff that's been scrolled onto these little bones and things. Let's talk about China's economy, the economy of Imperial China, um, you 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 have passages about their massive manufacturing base. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they just dwarf anything that was in Europe. Uh, you talk about uh, in one in right. one in one page. You talk about they had uh, shopping centers that were biggest bigger than the biggest U.S. shopping malls now. Um, love to hear a little bit about that. How did how did their economy, let's say, compare to European economy? Well, you know, we we have this this image of China today. You know, we we call it an emerging market or a developing country. And of course, in the very recent history, it is because it had, the economy had fallen on hard times and people fell into poverty. But you know, historically, uh, China was was almost always one of the largest economies in the world and a major, major engine of global trade. And, you know, again, we're, go we're going talking about going back 2000 years. Um, and uh, the Chinese had developed uh, tremendously advanced manufacturing capabilities and things like steel uh, and other metallurgy. Uh, they had developed, um, uh, of course, 
they're famous for the porcelain, which was invented in China, which became a, a tremendously advanced industrial industry, uh, um, it, uh, industry in China and a major, major source of, of exports for centuries. Uh, and there's some writing now that, you know, about a thousand years ago, during the Song Dynasty, that the, the China actually came, came close to an industrial revolution, or they had their own sort of industrial revolution, not like wow. they had in, had in Europe several hundred years later, uh, but that the Chinese were, for example, producing steel on, on a level, uh, to, to, on a scale that uh, was not seen in Europe until the Industrial Revolution. So uh, uh, this this part of, I think, Chinese history is, is almost completely unknown in, in the West. But, you know, remember, you know, what was Christopher Columbus looking for when he sailed across the Atlantic? He, he wasn't looking for the Caribbean. He was looking for the riches of China. That, <laughs> he that, stumbled that, on Americas. And he, he, he stumbled on the Americas. And, and you know, look at what the Portuguese did, you know, turning around the Horn of Africa and getting into the Indian Ocean. What were they looking for? They were looking for, obviously, spices and things like that. But it, this, was the, this was basically the riches of the East, including China. This is why this how the Silk Road trading networks existed through Central Asia, going already back two thousand years. Um, and that was traders risking life and limb, going over mountains and deserts to get their hands on Chinese silk, which is a major Chinese manufacturer. Uh, you know, going over the dynasty that. period, right? So, uh, you know, so so China, similar to its civilizational home. Uh, that was something that was relatively consistent over time. China was also a major, major, major global economic force uh, through large sections of, the, of its history. In the last segment, you mentioned uh, China's government um, and uh, principles and philosophies for governing. Um, well, I'm interested in, in, in uh, the institution of civil service examination and perhaps it's just me but i find this fascinating going back several several centuries ago you know it was sounds like it was a meritocracy of some sort you'd really have to know you before like up to even recently two three hundred years ago um they were selling uh, government posts in france and england that's right i mean it's a system that developed over time but it developed with with exactly kind of what you're getting at there that you know the leadership realized that they needed professional civil servants. Uh, you know, originally it was like just like most societies, right? It was the nobility that got the major, you know, posts. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, you know that the that already began to change. In it's a very basic sense all the way back in the Han Dynasty with this idea of having an imperial academy that would that would train civil servants. Uh, and the, the civil service exams kind of grew out of that thinking over this coming centuries. Um, but it was, it, what was most interesting about the exam system, uh, aside from the fact that the amazing amount of period of time over which it, it existed, uh, was it did provide a certain level of social mobility that you did not see in Europe until very, very modern times, because it was open to, well, not everybody, because women, couldn't take it, but 
it, it, it was open to all men and it didn't matter what your background was. So if you could, if you could pass the test, you would, you would get a great job, uh, you know, in, in government. It didn't matter who you, who you were, uh, you know, Wow, unfortunately, as you can imagine, uh, so you didn't you didn't need to be born to some sort of duke, baron, or lord. You could you, no. you could you could make it on your own wits if if possible, right? You could make it on your own. I mean, and there's and there's all kinds of stories from Chinese literature. This is kind of a whole genre of, of writing in China about you know the poor kid who bested everybody else in passing exams, and you know what happened. It's it's it's. Uh, uh, you know, look, it's not a perfect system, just like anywhere else. If you're wealthy, um, you can afford to have a son or sons sitting and memorizing the classics all day, which is what they did. You know, if you're if you're a poor farmer, you may you may not be able you may need your son working on the farm. It wasn't a perfect system uh, in that sense, but it did it did leave opportunities for uh, for regular people. To move up the social uh, and economic ladder at a time when other parts of the world didn't have this system, um, I know that gunpowder was invented in China, um, and we talked about how China has actually been defeated uh, in its history; it's been conquered. But I'm wondering, what is what was China's military power like? You know, throughout the centuries up to let's say well, two hundred years ago or so. Yeah, I mean, look, it it rose and fell, just like just like you know most societies over a very long period of time. There were there were periods where the dynasties were very militarily dominant, very militarily aggressive, usually in their early stages. Uh, you know, when you look at the map of the Han Dynasty, which doesn't look all that different than the current map, it's a little smaller, but um, it, you know. Uh, or the Tang Dynasty, which is, you know, these were dynasties that were fighting battles deep into Central Asia. Um, it's so there were there were periods when the Chinese were very very militarily dominant, but actually, to be honest, they've been relatively relatively short. Um, and I'm sorry, uh, what was it relatively short? Their dominance? They've been relatively times? they've been relatively short within the context of the huge scope of. Thousands of years of Chinese history. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the pattern seemed to be that when the dynasties were new and energetic, they became quite expansionist, and they would invade and start wars with their neighbors, uh, and then they would go through a period of, of where they would kind of hold their own, <laughs> uh, but they stopped expanding, and then they'd go through a period where, you know, uh, the dynasties would would weaken and uh, they would become vulnerable to outside powers. Um, and uh, and there were so there, there were periods where the, the dynasties actually, even in some cases, they were tremendously wealthy and uh, tremendously influential, like during the Song Dynasty, which was an amazing period of literature and philosophy and art and economic advance. Uh, they they weren't all that great on the military side, honestly. <laughs> honestly, um, so where they you know they 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 had a fought stalemates with some of their neighbors and, of course, were eventually defeated uh, by by the Mongols. Um, so, uh, you know, you hear, but however, I should say, you know, you hear a lot today about uh, 
China being a peaceful country. Uh, this is kind of the, the propaganda you hear from the Chinese government and the Chinese media and supporters of China. That China's always been a peaceful country. China's never fought wars and never invaded anybody. And, you know, that's kind of also uh, kind of patently false. Uh, you know, China as a nation state looks like China today because large sections of the current current country were conquered at, at one point. Uh, Chinese don't like to seem to admit that to themselves for some reason, but uh, there's really no way of avoiding it when you look at what just you just have to look at how how the country has been put together. Um, so uh, though China, I think, would say had long periods where it was not a ma- major military force, uh, it wasn't really a peace. They weren't particularly peaceful people either. Was their military technology? Um more advanced, let's say, than the Europeans? What if like a European ship and a Chinese ship happen to meet somewhere in the Indian Ocean? Are these sort of, as a superpower, was it just a size or also advancement of military capability? Well, this is this is one of the, you're, you're getting at one of the great what-ifs of, of history. Uh, you know, there's one of, one of the more famous but brief periods of of Chinese history uh, is are the voyages of Zheng Ha, the great the great mariner and his and his giant his giant fleets of what they call treasure ships. Um, there's a lot of debate over how big these ships were and how many ships there were and this kind of thing. But there are records that you know the Zheng Ha and his and his fleets uh, explored all across the Indian Ocean, all the way to East Africa, and they were doing this in uh, the early 15th century. And then this was during the Ming Dynasty, and the Ming Dynasty eventually decided these things were too expensive and uh, uh, gave up on them in the 1430s. And, you know, just a few decades later, the Portuguese found their way into the Indian Ocean. Vasco da Gama in 1498 ended up in, in India. And it's one of the great what-ifs of history is what if the Chinese had maintained these huge treasure fleets and they ran into the Portuguese at some stage and what actually would have happened and how would that have changed history? It didn't happen. Um, and and actually when the Portuguese did make their way all the way to China, which was in the very early 16th century, uh, the Chinese already noted at, you know, at the time that the Portuguese had pretty good cannon. Um, you know, the the, the Europeans had started to get a some military advantage technologically, uh, even even at that point. Um, it it didn't really manifest itself for centuries centuries later, uh, but uh, it's it's the, the the Chinese were a great military power in their own their own context, and they were innovative at different times, but. Uh, you know, they they very often did not have any technological advantage over their their enemies. Interesting, which is different than some of the narratives that we hear. We'll be back after a short break to talk more about the Ming Dynasty and also another dynasty in China's history that changed uh, the history, the trajectory of China's uh, power and super power them, if you will. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? 
That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Mr. Schumann, the Ming Dynasty ruled China from 1368 to 1644. Those are the dates I have. That's 276 years, longer than America has been a country. In your book, I found an interesting description of this period. Quote, authentic Chinese rule in China. What does this mean? What what do you... Well, yeah. The Ming, well, this was part of the Ming Dynasty self-perception because with the Ming, the Ming Dynasty was founded by uh, a rebel leader who, through the invading Mongols, the descendants of, of Genghis Khan, out of China, uh, and so when he formed the Ming Dynasty, uh, he basically restored Chinese rule over China, uh, and that was a big early message of. The Ming, the Ming leaders. That they, it was almost. I read it as kind of an early form of kind of Chinese nationalism. Uh, that that basically he was he was uh, you know chasing out the far bad guys who were you know ruining the country, and he was going to bring back bring China back to where China deserved to be as a as a Chinese power in its own right. And they had ideas about what China was supposed what is what's traditionally Chinese territory. And they, you know, honestly, even earlier than that, going back to the Song Dynasty, they started getting ideas about the Chinese, quote, nation. Again, not quite the way we would define it today, but the idea that China had had natural boundaries where the Chinese people were supposed to live. And, and they got very, very worked up about Chinese communities that were being governed by non-Chinese. Uh, and this was the source of some of their wars and some of their failed wars. Uh, so uh, the, the, the Ming Dynasty, and, and part of what the Ming Dynasty was doing, and we're going back to the Joan Hall voyages, was basically announcing that China's, China's back. China's uh, back. China's back. We had this really bad stretch with the Mongols cut in, but you know they're gone now, and now we're back, and now we're we're basically reestablishing ourselves and reestablishing our role. So those huge treasure ships that were sent through the Indian Ocean uh, and South China Sea and what have you, um, right? Were they out for commerce and 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 diplomacy, or was there more to it? Was there a military sort of flexing of military muscle as well? It it was a little everything. Uh, okay. They did trade. Uh, they they were sent on diplomatic missions. Uh, they also they also fought some conflicts um, in what is today Sri Lanka and in Southeast Asia um, in, in in support or of, uh, of kind of pro-China leaders or against anti-China leaders. So uh, you know what today the Zhong Convoyage is getting back to the how history is. Is uh, envisioned. They're they're 
contrasted with the um, the European maritime empires, these colonial empires, whatever you know, with the Europeans kind of taking over pieces of the world, and the Chinese like to say, "Well, see, we were always peaceful because you look at Zhang Ha; he didn't conquer. He didn't conquer yeah, anyone. He didn't colonize or conquer. Yeah, right. But 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 the fact is that these voyages, we know from the records, were carrying in many cases thousands of soldiers. So they these well, yes, the voyages were peaceful in the sense that they weren't out to expand Chinese territory, which they did not do. Um, but they were definitely to uh, meant to cow people around the region and to convince them to become tributaries of, of the Chinese emperor. Uh, so there was definitely a, a military force aspect of it that was not the same, obviously, as the European conquest, but uh, was there nonetheless. It, it it was not a hundred percent peaceful in every aspect as Ch the Chinese like to pretend. Uh, like to pretend, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> during the Ming Dynasty, um, this is a very interesting passage uh, from your book. Um, there seems to have been a major shift, and you alluded to this in who was considered Chinese. Let me read a passage from your book on this. Quote, a barbarian could be just as Chinese as anyone born into Zhongu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means heartland, if he was educated in the classics, followed the proper rites, and embraced Chinese moral tenets. Now, and by now, uh, Mr. Schumann, you mean the Ming Dynasty. Now, Chinese saw themselves as Chinese because of their historical roots and ethnic background, no matter what their ha habits and lifestyles might be. Be. So, based on this definition of citizenship, many of the conquered people were not really Chinese. Is that help me understand this better? Yeah. Well, I think what's what's interesting about Chinese civilization, going all let's say going all the way back two thousand years plus, right, was it had a universal aspect, right, where you didn't have concepts back then of you know racial and ethnic differences in the way that we we do today. So. The, the Chinese had uh, tremendous respect for people who would adopt their, uh, their culture and their ways. And they defined themselves versus other people uh, based on the level of their civilization. In other words, how, how Chinese did, have you become? So their, their view of the world was that the the, the heart of world civilization was, you know, the heart of China. And the farther you got away from the center of China, the more barbaric the world became, right? Because the less less uh, influenced by and connected to these people were to Chinese civilization. So, you know, there's, a, but over this, the centuries, this slowly began to change, and you already see elements of it even during the Han Dynasty uh, when they came into conflict with uh, uh, a northern steppe people called the, the Xiongnu. This is like an old, this is like a very early superpower confrontation between the Han Dynasty and the, the Xiongnu Confederacy with the base in the northern steppe. And they fought terrible wars over a very long period of time. And, uh, and the Chinese then even began to realize, hey, wait a second, these, these people look like they're never really going to become Chinese. 
So there are some there that became an other, like maybe not everybody is really going to become Chinese. And so then there is an us and a them. And, and these, these ideas kind of change and morph you know, over time. And we're somewhat in competition with one another over time. Where the, you know, the, the, the Chinese, even in, you know, going, or going even in you know, the Ming Dynasty and later, uh, they would get along a lot better with you if they felt that you had adopted more elements of their culture. One of the reasons why the Chinese and the, the Koreans will actually always had you know, relatively good relations with because the Chinese felt that the Koreans were were really a lot like Chinese in terms of their their in, in terms of their culture. Um, so <laughs> this idea sort of never went away, but you know over time. Uh, just like with all societies, the, the, the definition of who is us and who's them. When you say us, does that mean Han people? Also, uh, you say it's hardened. Uh, I note that in the last 10 years or so, President Xi has actually mentioned the Ming Dynasty in several different speeches. Uh, so what's the connection there? Is this, uh, you know, to be Chinese to me, is to be like a part of the dominant Han race or people? Um, well, then you're getting into different issues of kind of modern Chinese ideas about what is Chinese. Okay. Uh, and then you get into issues of Han, you know, basically the Han people versus versus minorities. Um, you know, over in the more modern times, the Chinese have adopted ideas of, of race and national identity in the way that, are, you know, the rest of the world has, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, just as Europeans, you know, began to see the world as, you know, everything from Europeans and to non-Europeans, also white people versus different races of people, and you yeah. know, our our culture versus other cultures, and our culture is superior. I mean, you had all of these different definitions of, of of where kind of you belong in society versus others. Uh, you know, the Chinese also have a have. Uh, adopted and inherited all, all of these ideas as well about, you know, the, the battles between the races and, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Chinese, just like everybody else at certain points, of, and I would argue even, even today, you know, see the world as a, as a, a battle for survival between different races. This is something you know, interesting. As a, as a European, did did as well. So you know what you're what you're getting at is how Chinese identity has changed over time, and of course it's been influenced not just by China's own story, but also by the ideas that they get from from the outside about the nation states and national identities. You know, China wasn't a nation state in the sense that we in, in understand nation states. Right until after the fall of the Qing Dynasty, and you know, so the, the dynasties identify themselves differently the way nation states identify themselves. When you talk about, you know, you mentioned the Qing Dynasty um, in the previous segment, we talked about different dynasties that had been invaded by foreigners and they had collapsed, such as the Ming Dynasty. But something entirely different happens during the Qing dynasty. Europeans come. What what changes here? What what are these new how do these new foreigners 
differ than all the previous foreigners in China's perception of their own history? Uh, this is where you get into the um, the interruption. Because, interruption. Uh, yes. The title that's of your book, Superpower in, Interrupted. Yeah. This is where you get in, in into the interrupted part. Because what, because the, as you said, the Chinese have had confrontations with all kinds of different people and they've lost lots of wars and they, so on. So the, but the confrontation with the West is different because this was really the first time when the Chinese had a confrontation with another group of people who believed that their civilization was superior and that the Chinese civilization was backward. Huh. Uh, what, when you look at the Chinese Chinese history, whenever they were invaded, what happened? Well, invariably, the invaders started to adopt aspects of Chinese history, uh, Chinese civilization. Get absorbed uh, by China's civilization. They get, well, you would have kind of, a, uh, you know, a, a, a meshing of their original mm-hmm. cultures and Chinese culture. Some of it was done out of sheer practicality. These people were usually minorities ruling over a massive Chinese majority. So they had to basically appeal to the majority and become more Chinese. That's what happened with, let's say, the Mongols, um, who, you know, still somewhat trying to keep themselves apart, but as a distinct group, but at the same time realized they had to at least appeal to the Chinese and appear to be Chinese rulers if they were really going to rule China. and you know, another another invaders kind of adopted Chinese civilization and you know, much more wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, including the you know the, the, the Qing dynasty was also an invasion dynasty from uh, the northeast, uh, people from the northeast, and um, uh, they maintained a lot of aspects of their own culture. They also reveled in the idea that they were kind of part of Chinese civilization, and, and the Qing dynasty produced some of. Some emperors that the Chinese look back on as thinking that these were some of their greatest emperors. So <laughs> you, know, you had this, you had this meshing of civilizations. Suddenly, you have you have this competition with the West, and the Westerners didn't seem particularly interested in Chinese civilization because they thought they had a they had a superior civilization. And at that point, we're talking about you know when the well, you know the the Europeans, starting with the Portuguese and the Chinese, had very direct, consistent dealings going back to the early 1500s. But the the reality of it is, the Chinese really had the upper hand uh, for you know several hundred years, and it, it was only when the confrontation with the West really only started in the early 19th century, right? Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. By that point, the Europeans could not only claim they had a superior civilization, but they also had better technology, better economic organization, better political organization. And this is how you, you end up with the Opium War. Where yeah, the loss of the Chinese, Hong Kong. Right, where the Chinese were humiliated by, by the British. And because, because the British were just far more advanced, uh, and and the Chinese really had no idea, uh, and this basically came as a shock. And what what happened as this process went on, and China became kind of prey to the European imperialists, and the, and 
the Chinese reformers themselves began to kind of say, wait a second, maybe our traditional culture that we've had for all these thousands of years has become out of date and useless and we basically cannot compete anymore. And we oh, have wow. to become we have to become more like the West, more like the Westerners in order to survive in the, in the modern world. And uh, you know that's a process that started in the late 19th century. And to, to be honest with you, it's still something that the Chinese are, are struggling with uh, today. Um, but you know, the, some of the early uh, uh, the early members of the Communist Party, the founders of the Communist Party, uh, had this idea that basically the, the nation was not going to survive unless you, you cleaned house. You got rid of all of the old, all of the old culture and the old practices and old ways, and you had to replace it with something else. And this was That's really a disruption in, in my, to the civilization. It, it, right. You, they basically turned on their own history and their own civilization. And in my view, that was really the, the first time that you saw such a dramatic break in Chinese history, where uh, uh, in the past, and even when things looked really bad and the country was in civil war and they were getting invaded, the Chinese still held this idea that, oh, wait a second, we're actually still kind of a great civilization. And look at those foreigners, they have to kind of, you know, read our books and learn how to do things our way. Yeah. And and now, you know, starting about 150 years ago, that began to to change for the first time. It's like, wait a second, maybe maybe those other guys have better ideas, uh, and that's how you end up with democracy in China, capitalism, of course, communism, which is also a foreign import. Uh, you know, the Chinese have spent you know the last uh, 100 125 you know 100 125 years experimenting with ideas from the outside. In your book, you um, say something uh, that resonates with this sort of awareness that they may be behind the West, but it's not just about what the Chinese think of themselves. This is what you say. China's neighbors were looking to the West, not China, to learn how to govern, grow rich, and become modern. So there was also this general realization in Asia, at least East Asia, that China was no longer um, a dominant uh, civilization. Right. right, right. The entire the entire Chinese civilizational sphere kind of semi-collapsed. You know, uh, you know, Chinese influence didn't go away entirely. Uh, and, you know, Koreans and Japanese, they were still reading Chinese classical texts and this kind of thing. But in terms of the new ideas, in terms of, well, what's the future? Uh, a lot of the political elites in Asia began turning to the West. And look, look if that's what happened with Japan, you know, Japan was, was had its own shock with its confrontation with the West when they realized we've fallen really far behind and, you know, we're going to end up like all those other peoples around the world. They're getting dominated by by foreigners unless we do something about it. And that's where you get to the Meiji Restoration and a reform movement that that tried to very rapidly bring Japan on par uh, industrially, technologically, and politically with the West. And of course, they succeeded in that. 
Um, so this the the eyes of the, of the region began to turn away from China, and mm -hmm. to a great degree, that's that hasn't necessarily changed. The Chinese mm -hmm. would like it to change, but when you think about I'm sure. When you think about look at the relationship that, for example, the United States still has with Japan and and, and Korea, and uh, you know even when you look at Vietnam, uh, you know these used to be basically you know the core parts of East Asia in terms of the Chinese cultural sphere, uh, and now you know Japan and Korea are more or less tied tied to the tied to the West with democratic governments uh, that they you know, ideas inherited. From the West, so this process is is still going on. I mean, the the Chinese, I think, would like to reassert that cultural influence. Xi Jinping talks about the need to improve Chinese soft power. Uh, the problem is, of course, they're really not very good at it, and part of it is that they haven't necessarily restored that traditional culture at home. They talk about it more, and they it's become more acceptable than it was previously. Uh, but it's it's not like they've had a wholesale return to these to China to the kind of Chinese civilization that was so uh, so attractive and so influential in the past. One of the things that uh, really interested me in reading your book uh, was a, a painting uh, you had, and it's of a emissary, I think, from King George the Third. Uh, that he's supposed to kowtow before the Chinese emperor, but he instead sort of bends the knee. He kneels. Um, right. Was this a big moment of realization for the Chinese? You said, you know, they were mostly in the dark about how behind they are, but when they actually have an emissary that comes to them and doesn't do the traditional kowtow, is this a wake-up moment or no? It just goes on. Um. It's interesting because that that mission from from Britain was just kind of a, a whole collection of different fiascos. It was basically, <laughs> basically you know, it, it was basically it was just driven by you know uh, uh, cultural ignorance on both sides as to what each side expected the other side to do, and. Um, this, when you when you look though at how the Chinese court responded to this, it was not um, uh, there isn't self reflection uh, on this. Like, well, why didn't these people cooperate? It was it was it was more like, how dare these people don't cooperate? Um, you know, when you look at the at the letter that the Chinese emperor sent, you know, back to. Uh, uh, Back, back to London, to the to the, the British court, uh, it was all basically more or less a form of you don't know how we do things around here, and uh, we're not <laughs> we're not we're not we're not changing our ways our ways for you, you know, because the McCartney mission was asking for changes in the in the way that the Chinese court interacted with other countries. For example, the the British want to put like. More or less, an, an ambassador, you know, in in Beijing to deal with the, the court all the time. That's not how the Chinese did things. Um, so a lot of what happened was just kind of cultural mis miscommunication. 
But the Chinese did not at all take away from that. Uh, and this that mission, by the way, was in kind of late problem. 1700s. This mission that we're talking about. This China. was this was the 1790s. 1790s. Yes. And fast forward about uh, 30 years or so, you have the Opium War. And you got 40 years, a little less than 40, give me 40 years 40, of the Opium yeah. War. And yeah. then we have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong without getting into the history of it, but we start what is called uh, a century or 100 years it's of The heat. century of humiliation. Oh, yeah. You know, but, but what, what's fascinating about the Opium War that often doesn't get discussed is um, uh, how, how little understanding the, the Qing dynasty leadership, the court and the leaders, how little understanding they really had about who they're dealing with. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this famous um, uh, question, the, the, the emperor, for instance, uh, asked one of, one, of his, one of his officials, he, he didn't understand why, the, why there were Indians fighting with the British army. Uh, that's because he he didn't seem to know that the British had, at that point, you know, conquered most of most of South most wow. of India. Um, so they were really somewhat ignorant about the people they were dealing with. And and uh, after the war, there were some influential writers and thinkers who basically said just that: "Say, hey, this is what happens when you become so insular." Uh, that uh, and you don't know enough about the world to believe you end up in a mess like this. And uh, you have some of these writers start to kind of try to piece together, well, what was happening in Europe and who were these people and uh, what was really going on. Um, so, But in China's history, being insular had worked for them for centuries on. Everyone came to them and gave them, you know, it was a tributary system. This is, but in the 1800s, right. late 1700s, that began to change. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Mr. Schumann as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Mr. Schumann, um, I'm interested in talking about um, a subject that I, I hope I couch this uh, question clearly. <laughs> You're welcome to clarify it. In the West, we follow a tradition of institutionalization of the government. Uh, many are democratic governments now, some are not, unfortunately. But in China, there seems to be uh, a long tradition of placing focus on the person of an absolute ruler. Do I have this right? Uh, yes and no. I'll, I'll start with the that's, yes. That's good but, for a good discussion. Yeah, I'll start with the yes. Look, it, when you the interesting thing about Confucian political theory is uh, is the focus on good good people. The Confucian idea of good government is that you need good people, and this was could the the. Confucius and his followers believed that government was the realm of the most educated, most virtuous, most wise people, right? And uh, because because they had the uh, the education, 
and the knowledge and the the the, um, the judgment to be able to properly rule over society. So they didn't necessarily believe in systems. They believed in uh, that government was based on uh, benevolence and morality. And if you had benevolent moral people running the state, then you would have a benevolent moral state. Um, and so that sounds like what I asked. So that's the yes well, part, I guess. That that's the yes part because because you 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 get into the idea that that systems that people matter more than systems, right? So the idea that if you had a a virtuous ruler that that this person would have a magical effect on all society that his his virtue would would uh, would convince uh, the people to be more virtuous. You would have harmonious society. A harmonious society, all because of one person who did the right thing, right? Well, so, that's a lot of influence. Okay, right. But this, so, so that also then kind of connects to the idea of the role of the emperor on the role of authority in more general in society and in in Confucian philosophy, where you always uh, Confucian relationships are all based on superior and inferior uh, positions, right? So mm -hmm. even within a family, or the, the, the father uh, has dominance over the son, that kind of thing. And these, these relationships were all supposed to be uh, reciprocal, right? That they weren't supposed to be abusive. They were supposed to be benevolent. So the person in superior position was caring and loving and back and, and Therefore, the person in the, in the inferior uh, position was loyal and reverent. Okay, so these ideas then got kind of hoisted onto the emperor. That the idea that the you know the, the emperor played this role in society of being the uh, the benevolent leader that was deserving of everybody's respect and loyalty, but of course the idea was that the ruler himself had to be. A benevolent, kind person who was caring for the people. This is the ideal Confucian state. So, an ideal that not that very, didn't always meet reality, right? Um, it almost never meant reality, <laughs> but that's the idea. But but when, when you look at the Chinese imperial systems and the emperors, this is how this is how they were structured. The emperor was was the center of the political system. He was supposed to be benevolent and wise, a sage king. And then everyone was supposed to be loyal to 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 the emperor. That's how they that's how they worked. Now, uh, uh, and in theory, the emperor had no constraints on his power. He had absolute power. Whatever the emperor said was was law. Then you get into the the no part. Is that of course it wasn't that simple because what happened was also in real in proper Confucian government. Uh, the emperor was supposed to rule with his wisest and uh, most educated uh, uh, um, uh, bureaucrats and scholars and officials and statesmen. So the the check on the behavior of the emperor was supposed to be one your own moral code because you know you weren't supposed to do bad things if you were an emperor, uh, and then a, a system or basically court effectively court rules and etiquette, where the emperor had to rule within this kind of certain protocols. And 
in many periods of periods of history, depending on the emperor, you know, it was it was the people in the court, the scholars, the people who passed those exams that you mentioned earlier, you know, who reached reached to the upper levels of the of the of the imperial government. They were really the ones running the ship, not the emperor. The emperor was was very often a, a more ceremonial figure. He ultimately had power. You need to, had to make the decisions, but uh, in, in many cases, this was a much more collective system than what I think people would, you know, envision. Um, so, is that true of China's government now? Does it follow sort of the Confucius principle now? I would think they'd like to think. They, I think they like to think that they're somewhat Confucian. I. The Confucians wouldn't say they're Confucian <laughs> because, um, look, the Confucians believe that if you're if you're really a proper moral king, that you almost don't need laws because you're so wonderful that everybody will follow you naturally, right? That this is just natural human behavior. If wow, that's, is, that's so wishful good, thinking. Right? Yes, if someone is a well, I mean, it's it is somewhat logical, right? If someone yeah. If you have a ruler who's uh, makes sure everybody has food and it doesn't overtax you and keeps the keeps society secure and has a fair judicial system, I'm making all this up, right? The likelihood is that more people are are, are going to support it, right? I mean, just this is just basically human nature. Yeah. So uh, that's the idea. So. Um, so the, the Confucians almost took it to the, the point where it's like, you almost don't need laws because plus the, you wouldn't need to punish anyone. Why would you need to punish anybody in this kind of harmonious state? So wow. we, the Confucians would see, and they, this is why a lot of people think Confucianism in its classical form uh, is authoritarian when it, it's actually actually kind of not because the Confucians don't believe in coercive government, right? Because they think it would be unnecessary. If you need to be coercive, that means you're not doing your job, right? So I think the way the Confucians would look at, at the current government, uh, they'd be like, well, this is a government that's so repressive, that has so many controls on society, uh, that uh, if he needs, if, he, if, the, if the ruler needs to be this controlling and repressive, well, then, you know, you need some self, some more of self cultivation. Yeah. yeah Make sure you're doing the right thing. That's, that would be the, I think, I can't speak for Confucius, obviously, but that would be my, my kind of interpretation. Yeah. Mr. Schumann, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, 
unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Thank you.